On the evening of the 31st of December 1918, a ship called the Eilair, which uh, is Gaelic for Eagle, was bringing home sailors uh, to the island of Lewis. Uh, they'd fought in the First World War and this was them coming home. Uh, you can imagine the excitement of the men on, the board, on board and the excitement of their loved ones eagerly awaiting their arrival back home. The war had finished the previous month and the men would have been looking forward to seeing their wives and families in time for New Year's Day. But two and a half hours into the new year, the ship hit rocks a mile from the safety of Stornoway Harbour and sank. At least 205 of the 280 passengers perished. In one night, uh, unbelievable joy uh, turned into unimaginable tragedy. Sailors who, who had perhaps miraculously escaped death time and time again during the last four years were drowned just when it looked like they were safely home. Well, at the end of 1 Kings 17, we also see tragedy strike hot on the heels of joy. Just when this widow thinks that she's out of the woods and her son has been healed, he gets sick and he dies after his, his life has been spared. So what is God doing here and what does he have to say to us? Well, we're going to look at this closing section under three headings, seeing firstly the Lord's mysterious providence. The Lord's mysterious providence. We've just left the the previous section on on a high note. Uh, The woman who in verse 12 was about to make her last meal for herself and her son before they died had experienced God's miraculous provision. Not just once, but day after day after day. Every day she went to the cupboard and the jar still had flour and the jug still had oil. Things had looked bleak, uh, but now by God's help they turned a corner. But just as they come round that corner, they run straight into verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. As one commentator says, the next paragraph of life can slam you flat on the ground. The morning had started like any other, no doubt. She goes to the cupboard and God is still providing. But suddenly, without warning, life slips away from her son. One minute she's delighting in God's provision and the next she's devastated. Uh, And maybe you've known the same. Perhaps you've prayed and longed for something and just when you finally have it, God has taken it away. Maybe it was a plan to move or or study in a particular place and everything fell into place for that. You were just about ready to start or you just started and suddenly it all fell through. I was listening to an interview during the week about a couple who had waited years to conceive. Uh, they, they uh, They prayed about it and God had answered their prayers. And then their baby was was stillborn at 39 weeks. 
when we expect that something's going to go wrong, we can be good at preparing ourselves for the worst. Even if something happens out of the blue, but by God's grace, we can react well. But having your world collapse just when it seems like you can finally breathe can just crush us. It can knock the stuffing right out of us. And if, if that does sound familiar to you, one encouragement you can take from uh, the opening verse of this section is that you're not alone. That there isn't something wrong with you, that you haven't done something to deserve this. And this is just the way God sometimes works. The God who blesses his people also baffles them at times, sometimes in, in quick succession, and there's no obvious explanation. So when you read the Bible, you're not reading a book that's far removed from everyday life, but it, it's a record of people who are encountering the same things that you encounter and who ask the same questions that you are asking. And if you picture the scene, it's not hard, too hard to imagine this woman looking up past the lifeless body of her son in her arms and, and seeing the jar of flour and the jug of oil and thinking, what's the point? God, what's the point of keeping him alive during the famine if he's going to die of a fever? As I mentioned before the reading from Hebrews 11, it would seem that this woman had come to faith in the living God. Yes, her faith is, is young and shaky, uh, but she's a new convert. Uh, and almost immediately she has to deal with this. It's not the way we, we plan it, is it? We'd wait until she'd been a believer for a few years. We'd wait until she had a, a clearer understanding of God and, and a better knowledge of his word to help support her. We'd worry that something like this could break a new convert that it would snuff out the little faith that she had. But in his wisdom, God brings this tragedy into her life at this tender stage. It didn't seem to make any sense at the time, not to her, not even to Elijah. But all we can say is that for his own reasons, God is, is teaching her things early in her faith teaching her that he is a God who, who both provides and perplexes at times when, when we can't see any reason why. And it is a good lesson to learn early on because it's one way to know whether you believe in the true God or a God of your own imagination. Because a God of your own imagination would be under your control. He, he wouldn't do things that you don't understand or don't like. In fact, if, you're, if your God never does anything your mind can't understand or cope with, then the chances are that you've made him up yourself. If your God is, is limited by what your mind can understand, then uh, chances are that it's because he came out of your mind in the first place. There's a bit in one of Shakespeare's plays uh, where uh, one character says to another, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And don't we, we hear people saying, well, I can't believe in a God who would let 3,000 people die in an earthquake in Morocco. Or, or I can't believe in a God who would let children die. 
I can't believe in a God who would, who would bring this tragedy into my life. But by saying that, they're, they're limiting their, their conception of God to what their mind can cope with. Uh, they're saying that there can't be anything more in heaven on earth than their philosophy can make room for. So the true God at times does things that, that we wouldn't. Another lesson this widow needs to learn early on is that she can't judge God by his providence. What's her reaction in verse 18? Well, she's conscious of her sins and so she assumes that God must have killed her son because she had sinned against him. Her, her logic is that when God provided for her and for her son that he must have been pleased with her. But now that he's killed her son, he must be angry with her. Now maybe we wouldn't put it as starkly as that. But, but are we not prone to that at times as well? Things are going well for us and we think God is happy with us. Uh, but then tragedy strikes and we think God must be unhappy with us. We tend to think the ups and downs of life reflect how God feels about us. Even if we know in theory that that's not the case, the second things start to go wrong, we can assume that God must be against us. But to look at providence for proof of how God feels about us is to look in the wrong place. Instead, when things go wrong, don't look at your circumstances, but look at the cross. Don't look at your circumstances, but look at the cross. If you're a Christian the cross is the proof that God is for you, not against you. That he is eternally and always for you. Uh, and he demonstrates that not, not in the ups and downs of life, but by sending his son to die for you. The changing tides of life, uh, the, the unexpected events of life are, are hard enough to deal with without putting unnecessary burdens on yourself. So one thing you must hold on to in the midst of it all is that God's love for you doesn't go up and down like the waves. But his love for you is constant and unchangeable. So whether your last week has been brilliant, whether it's been awful or just forgettable, your father looks on you and he loves you as much as he loves his own son. So firstly we see the Lord's mysterious providence Second, we see the Lord's perplexed but praying prophet. The Lord's perplexed but praying prophet. So God both blesses and baffles his people at times. Uh, when that happens to you, don't assume that something has gone wrong. Don't base your estimate of God's love on your circumstances. But what, what about when it's the lives of others who are falling apart and, and we're the ones left watching on, wondering what we could possibly say or do? Well, the reaction of Elijah is helpful for us here uh, because look at him in verse 18. In her despair, the widow lashes out at him and his involvement in her life. 
Uh, maybe you've experienced that uh, something hard comes into someone's life and they lash out at you. But notice how Elijah doesn't react. He doesn't react by defending himself. People react to grief in different ways. It can bring out the, the best in people, but it can also bring out the worst. But now is not the time for Elijah to, to start getting offended. It's also not the time to try and come up with explanations. Uh, now is not really the time to, to, to try and explain to her why, why bad things happen to good people. Even for God's prophet, uh, there's a time uh, to give words a rest. And he simply and tenderly says, give me your son. And then he takes the lifeless body up to his room. In verse 20, we have Elijah's prayer. And it's pretty reassuring. Because it tells us that Elijah doesn't have an explanation either. His prayer echoes the words of the widow. He's as at much of a loss as she is. All he can do is take her words and turn them to God in prayer. So it's not unspiritual not to always know the answer. So if God's prophet who, who speaks God's word doesn't understand what's going on here, then you shouldn't feel the need to always have to come up with an explanation. In fact, sometimes there are no words. Sometimes it's better to say very little. As Ecclesiastes tells us, there's a time to speak and a time to keep silence. If there was one person who you would have thought could have said something helpful at the time, it would have been Elijah. But he doesn't try and explain it. And yet he doesn't do nothing. He doesn't say much to her, but he does speak much to God. He, he fervently cries out to God. And as he does, so you can sense his own personal grief. This isn't a, a random child. Uh, that would have been tragic enough. But this is a boy he's been living under the same roof as, uh, perhaps for months. And it's not hard to imagine them growing close. Uh, the boy with no father figure in his life. Elijah, as far as we know, with no children of his own. And the fact that this has happened to a widow who has done so much for him and is a new believer herself. Uh, it's a, a, a very personal grief for Elijah as well. When he takes the boy's body up to his room, he stretches himself out on him three times. Why he does so, we're not entirely sure, I don't think, but it seems best to take it as an acted parable. He's saying, let his lifeless body become like my living body. But the main thing is that he prays. Just because Elijah is a great prophet, it doesn't mean he has some way of turning the situation around without prayer. He doesn't have some avenue that's not open to the rest of us. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Uh, that is God's appointed means. There's no fast track lane or special pass that he can show to get to the front of the queue. All he can do, like, like any of us, is, is pray. 
I remember being at Alton Towers and queuing for two hours and ten minutes to go on a three-minute roller coaster. But you could have paid for a fast pass and bypassed the queue and got straight on. But Elijah can't show his prophet pass and access God in a way not open to the rest of us. Like any of us, he must pray. And what does he pray for? Verse 21. O Lord my God, let the child's life come into him again. Maybe we, we read that and it doesn't seem that unusual to us. You know. Well, you know, the child's dead, so, so of course Elijah's going to pray that he would be raised to life again. After all, this is probably the sort of thing that prophets did all the time, wasn't it? Well, no. Uh, there are only ten people raised from the dead in the whole Bible. Only three in the Old Testament uh, and only during the unique ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And this is the very first one. So Elijah is here praying for something that has never happened before in the history of the world. And unlike us, he doesn't know how the story ends. So, so while Elijah showed great faith to pray that it wouldn't rain for three years, this is on a completely different scale. But while he prays for something unheard of and unprecedented, uh, the fact remains that the only option open to him is prayer. So when the bottom falls out of your world or out of the world of someone you know or love, you don't need to have answers ready, but you can and you must pray. Isn't that what we see so often in the Psalms? They're not written by people who, who know all the answers who can, who can explain what God is doing in, in their lives or in the life of their nation. Uh, they're not even written by people who have it all together, but in the midst of their perplexity, they pray. And often that's what a healthy Christian life will look like. Not necessarily someone whose life is going according to, to, to plan, to their plan at least, not someone who has it all together. But a man or, or woman or boy or girl who is perplexed but praying. Who doesn't understand what's happening but who cries out to the only one who does. And one day we, we will know why. For this widow, if her son hadn't died, she wouldn't have made the amazing confession in, in verse 24. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And we too can be sure that God has a good purpose in our suffering. But for now our job isn't to try and read providence but to pray. Elijah was the Lord's perplexed but praying prophet. And at times we will find ourselves to be his perplexed but by his grace praying people. Thirdly and finally this evening we see the Lord's life-giving power. The Lord's life-giving power. Have you seen those commercials which advertise a product by saying that they, they work twice as fast or, or clean five times as well as the leading brand? It's probably obvious to most people watching what the leading brand is. Uh, but the, the advertisers don't want to give it any more attention 
than it already has. Well, in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, the leading brand of religion of the day isn't mentioned. But as we've seen uh, with, with both sections we've looked at so far, each one is ridiculing Baal worship in different ways. Uh, this third section is no different. In verses 1 to 7, the Lord stops the rain, the very thing Baal was meant to be able to control. In the section we looked at last week, God, through Elijah, moves on to Baal's territory. Baal can't even provide food for his own people, but Yahweh provides food for this Baal-worshipping widow. And now in the final section, the Lord is launching another direct attack on Baal. To help us understand what's going on here, it helps to know some of the, the mythology of Baal. So Baal was a god who was meant to control the rain, but, but how do you explain the, the annual dry seasons that the country had? Well, to get around this, the Canaanites came up with the idea that at the end of the growing season each year, uh, the god Mot, which means death, would defeat Baal and bring him down to the realm of the dead, where he'd stay uh, during the dry season. But in the autumn, Baal would be helped by another god to escape in time to bring out bring out the rain and so it's one thing for the Lord to rescue people from the jaws of death as he's already done in this chapter but can he do anything when death has clumped its jaws tightly and swallowed its victim as someone has said he, he can cross the border from Israel into Sidon but is there a border that the Lord can't cross is there a kingdom over which he has no power when faced by death, must Yahweh, like Baal, bow the knee? Well, the answer of these verses is absolutely, categorically no. The God who can cross the wilderness to provide for Elijah and cross the border of Sidon to provide for the widow can even cross the border of death to bring back her son. Through Elijah, the Lord demonstrates his boundary-bursting power. The one who has power over the wilderness and power over enemy territory also has power over the grave. Maybe you think, well, that's a nice thought, but, but God couldn't work in my, my life because even if he has that power, I have done too many wrong things. But if death can't stop God, neither can sin. The widow thinks in verse 18 that her sin is an obstacle to God but even it isn't a barrier to him working. And that is the hope that the Bible gives us. Neither sin nor death can separate us from the love of Christ. But how is it possible and how can we know for sure? Well, it's possible because of Jesus. He crossed into the territory of death for his people. And in doing so, he paid the price for our sins. How do we know? Because he came back. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus' death has been accepted by God as a payment for the sins of his people. And it's also the proof that he delivered death. 
Unlike all the other people raised in the Bible, unlike the widow's son, Jesus didn't face death a second time. But only Jesus can pay the price. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. And there's a sense in which both Elijah and the widow misunderstood this. A number of commentators see Elijah stretching himself out in the boy as his way of saying, Take me instead. Uh, Surely any parent who's had to watch their child die would have swapped places with them in an instant if they could have. And that may well be Elijah's wish here. But God says to him, no. There's only one person who can be stretched out so that this boy will live. And that is my son on the cross. Elijah can't bring it back, but Jesus can. The power of the cross uh, stands at the centre of history and its power works both backwards and forwards. And here the power of the cross reaches back to this young boy and brings him back to life. Elijah couldn't give his life for the boy, but Jesus could But the widow also gets it wrong here. She she thinks, verse 18, that her son has been taken as punishment for her sins. You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance to me. But that's not how it works either. There's only one person who could give their son to pay the price for her sins, and that is God himself. On this last night with his disciples, Jesus would come to an upper room just like Elijah does here. And there he would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one person who can stand in our place. Elijah couldn't stand in for the widow's son even if she wanted to. And nor was the boy taken to pay the price for his mother's sin. And so while there may be people in this world who you would willingly give your life for, The best thing you can do for them spiritually is point them to the one who already has. The only way anyone can be confident in the face of death is if they're trusting in the one who has already defeated it in their place. So we've seen tonight the Lord's mysterious providence. We've seen his perplexed but praying prophet. And we've seen his life-giving power. And so when we stand beside the grave of loved ones, even if we can't understand what God is doing, we too can take comfort that even the grave can't stop God working. And we can look to the one who says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Well, let's sing to the one who will lead us beyond death, uh, singing the words of Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 6 to 10, page 97, tune 41. Psalm 48, 6 through to the end, page 97, tune 41. Earlier in the psalm, uh, in verse 4, we see those who don't know God. They're filled with dismay, trembling and terror. Uh, But look at the contrast with God's people in verse 6. Even in the midst of strange providences, they can trust in God. 
And how far does this trust extend? Well, if we turn over to verse 10, because this God will be our God to all eternity, yes, even he himself to death, our constant guide will be. Our God is a God we can trust, we can cling on to, even in the face of death. Psalm 48, 6 to 10, we'll stand and sing praise.